0: Hello and welcome to The Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. And for those of you that have been following or watching The Rogers Brief over the last number of months, you'll know that I usually cover uh, the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings uh, and well, now those are now wrapped up and I've changed my format. And so now what I'm doing is going through four, five, six uh, stories a week that either have a a legal angle that's maybe underappreciated, or else it's just an important legal angle, and I think would be of interest to you. So, I'm uh, going to do that from now on. I'll do once a week and release them on Sunday mornings, and so you'll uh, you'll have that to to wake up to as you're reading your Sunday news and doing all that. So, uh, this week I'm going to be talking about uh, six stories. The first one is I'm going to be covering the week that was in the Emergency Act. Uh, inquiry that's taking place in Ottawa, Uh, and there's been some news out of there this week. Second story is the Canadian Civil Liberties Association uh, Court of Appeal victory in Nova Scotia uh, this week, and uh, that had to do with the uh, protests, uh, some protests of the vaccine mandates and the, the COVID restrictions that were supposed to take place in May of 2021, and uh, there was a an injunction that the province sought and gained. Well, that went to the Court of Appeal, and so I'll talk a little bit about that case and the implications. Third story I want to cover is COVID-related as well. This one's out of British Columbia, but I think it'll have national implications. This was the first Superior Court decision uh, that was in a non-union context of vaccine mandates that were... Uh, mandatory vaccination policy that uh, an employer had enacted. An employee refused to get vaccinated. And uh, so there was fallout from that. So we'll talk about that case. Uh, The fourth story is uh, local, but again, with some national perhaps implications, the Dalhousie Law School has uh, announced that they're going to be doing a mandatory uh, course for first-year students on critical race theory. And so uh, I'll discuss that uh, briefly. Fifth story is... uh, Nova Scotia-based as well, this was a decision of the, court, of the uh, Supreme Court of Canada to do with uh, a land use case, and this was in the Blue Mountain, uh, Birch Cove Lake uh, area where a group, a private company owned the property, uh, Halifax uh, Regional Municipality rezoned the area into sort of a protected land, and so that became, uh, the allegation was that that was now an expropriation case, went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Annapolis Group was uh, victorious in that, uh, in that case in the Supreme Court. So, we'll talk a little bit about that again. And then finally, uh, talk about a case out of the United States, but also uh, how it's reflected in Canada. And that is the announcement from President Biden that he was going to issue pardons for anybody that had a, a federal record for a simple possession of marijuana. So, I'll look into that a little bit and compare that to the approach that the government of Canada has taken up here. Uh, Okay, so but before I get to that, I'll just uh, let people know that I'll be uh, appearing tonight on the nighttime podcast with Jordan Bonaparte. Very entertaining podcast. He's a great host. And uh, so we'll be talking about the Mass Casualty Commission and my alternate or competing uh, perhaps report uh, on the, the final report. Competing against the Commission's official version, which is going to come out at the end of March. Mine came out last week as an ebook. You can purchase it now on Apple Books, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, uh, or Smashwords is where it's originally published. And so I'll link to that in the YouTube description of uh, this video, and uh, you can check that out. So... Uh, Getting good reviews on it so far, and be happy to talk to Jordan about that tonight. And I'll uh, tweet out the time, and I'll put it up on Facebook as well as to what time that uh, video is going to be taking place. Actually, once I get the time, I'll actually put it. I'll put it in the description of the YouTube video as well. Okay, so first story, and that is the Emergency Act inquiry. And this week in Ottawa, we've heard more from the Ottawa Police uh, Superintendents and, and Superior Officers. About uh, and, and what we're learning is really that the Ottawa police really weren't all that prepared for the trucker convoy, even though they had received pretty uh, significant intelligence from uh, the Ontario Provincial Police that this convoy was going to be coming and they were going to settle in. One of the other things that came out this week was that the uh, some of the trucks left after the first weekend, but the Ottawa Police Service didn't uh, shrink the protest area, make it more uh, manageable. Uh, They had refused to negotiate with anybody connected with the truckers, and so uh, things just uh, persisted. We also heard this week from uh, Ottawa Police Service uh, Superintendent Bernier talking about how the uh, Emergencies Act, in his view, wasn't needed. Now, we're hearing some back and forth on this. Now, at some points, officers will say that it wasn't needed. For example, Commissioner Brenda Luckey of the RCMP said, well, not all non-emergency act uh, options had been exhausted, but hey, government, if you give me these powers under the emergency act, certainly will they'll be used. But the big thing I thought had been uh, significant of the significance of the emergency act was to compel these truck drivers or sorry, the tow truck drivers to come in and tow the trucks away. And of course, they wouldn't want to be associated with that and and get the bad publicity and who knows what from the truckers uh, that they may have feared. So uh, but what we're hearing now is that uh, that had all been arranged before the Emergency Act, that there were stickers or, or you know, magnets placed over the logos of the tow truck drivers so they wouldn't be targeted specifically from the, uh, uh, from the protesters, and that there was like 38 tr- tow trucks that had been um, commandeered or employed or, or put into service to, uh, to help with the, you know, with the government's efforts or the police's efforts to uh, fight the protests. Another issue that's coming up, though, two other things. One is there's going to be some secret testimony coming up from CSIS officials about uh, intelligence that they had gathered. Now, this is going to be, there's three hours of testimony that uh, Justice Rouleau is going to hear. He doesn't say when he's going to hear it. He doesn't want people to see people coming in and out of the building, I guess, uh, and who that might be even. And so there's going to be some limitations on that. After he hears the testimony, he'll decide how much of that can be made public uh, thereafter. Not unusual for, this, uh, for an inquiry to hear this. Actually, I thought this might take place during the mass casualty inquiry had it come out in some sort of um, more legitimate uh, forum that uh, Wartman had some connection to the police. It didn't happen there. It did happen in the uh, Mehar Arar inquiry and in the Somali inquiry. There were some national security issues, and so uh, some, of the, some of the testimony was heard in camera uh, in secret. The other issue is uh, Doug Ford, Premier Doug Ford. Uh, we're hearing some of his, uh, you know, allegations against Doug Ford that he was, uh, you know, he he was in hiding. He was trying to avoid uh, being involved in the protests in what in any way whatsoever. Now he said he stood shoulder to shoulder with the the Prime Minister and all this. Well, so now he's been called to testify. He's been summoned by the inquiry, and uh, Premier Ford and the. Solicitor General, which would be the the Justice Minister of uh, Ontario at the time, Sylvia Jones, are both uh, refusing to appear, and they are claiming parliamentary privilege. So, uh, what is that? What does that mean, and does it have a chance? Well, uh, yes, parliamentary privilege is what exempts either members of parliament or members of provincial legislatures from uh, testifying at civil proceedings either during a uh, session or 40 days prior and 40 days after that session is finished. So it takes away a good chunk of the year. Well, federally, it does. Provincially, uh, where, especially in Nova Scotia, the sittings aren't that long, it may not have the same kind of effect. Well, Ontario legislature is sitting currently, and so uh, Doug Ford is saying he's not uh, inclined to testify. Of course, he can go voluntarily if he wishes to do so, but this parliamentary privilege would, enable him to avoid uh, going, if he so chooses, to stick with that. Now, uh, there's an interesting decision from 2003, interesting if you're into parliamentary privilege rules, I guess, from Speaker Peter Milliken, who was a highly respected speaker in in Parliament for many years, that it is Parliament itself, the legislature, not the courts, that should make these decisions on parliamentary privilege. So uh, what I think the outcome of this is going to be is that Doug Ford's claim, no, Doug Ford is going to court uh, to, you know, oppose this summons. Uh, what I think the proper procedure actually is, according to Speaker Peter Milliken, is that that claim would be made in the legislature itself, the legislature would confirm it, and then, um, you know, the courts would have to respect it. the inquiry in this case, which has the powers of a civil court to compel testimony, to compel witnesses, to compel evidence, uh, that they would have to respect that parliamentary privilege claim from uh, Premier Ford and Minister uh, Jones, but like I say it 's up to the legislature and not the courts to to make that determination now interesting little comparison just if anybody's following news out of the United States that uh, the the January sixth hearings in Congress and that uh, President uh, Trump has refused to comply with a um, request subpoena to appear before Congress. And uh, that's interesting. Uh, now, Congress in that case, it's, it's a different story there. He does, he's not a sitting president anymore. Uh, some former presidents have been called and testified before Congress uh, under different circumstances, usually negotiated. Uh, pre, uh, president Trump has absolutely refused. So Congress in that case has two options. They can either uh, seek a federal court order to compel uh, former President Trump to comply That could take many months and would uh, probably not going to work out the second option is to find president trump in contempt of congress and then have the department of justice uh, prosecute him as they've done actually with steve bannon a former advisor to uh, president trump who just got sentenced to four months in jail so although he's appealing that and uh probably will successfully appeal that if uh, if i'm reading the situation correctly So we'll see what happens down there. We'll see what happens with uh, Premier Ford. Sounds like he's not going to testify, and the inquiry will have to be satisfied with provincial officials instead. Okay, so that's the Inquiry Act. A little more time on that than I had planned to spend, but uh, an important situation going on nationally. Second one, this is also, I think, important, and maybe it'll harken, well, depends if there's another pandemic or if there's any other protests, pandemic-related protests, but the uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association had appealed a an injunction that was, uh, laid down by Justice, uh, Norton last year. Uh, so there was to be these protests in May of 2021 on Citadel Hill, other places, I think in Halifax and in Barrington, uh, strangely in some ways maybe, but so the, uh, Department of Justice and Public Health through Dr. Strang, uh, applied to the court for an ex parte, that means without notice to any other parties, uh, order that would ban any uh, such protests and Justice Norton granted the order and so that you weren't allowed to protest and the, there would be civil uh, consequences if anybody did. Now, uh, the Court of Appeal took a very dim view of all this. Uh, in, in other words, they, they sided with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, uh, very critical of the health department, public health, Justice Department and of the decision, I guess, of Justice Norton, first of all, said that the application should not have been ex parte, that they should have provided notice to these people, because some of them were protest organizers who were known entities. They had been communicating and following them on social media, could have let them know, could have just publicized, uh, you know, just to anybody that was interested, like the Civil Liberties Association, who would have certainly intervened, that this application was taking place they didn't do that The court of appeal was quite critical of them for not doing so uh well the second point is oh, so that it shouldn't have been ex parte second point is that the court is the court of appeal was uh, entitled to hear it even though the issue is now moot the uh, state of emergency is now over but what the court of appeal says is this could happen again and there's a principle there that needs to be established by the court of appeal in case uh, you know to guide any future efforts to have uh, an ex parte order of this nature the judge said the uh, Court of Appeal said sorry that the uh, original judge should have considered the charter rights of people protesting the right to free speech the right to the right to gather and assemble uh, free assembly so that uh, should have been considered really wasn't explicitly uh, covered in the original court decision and that the injunction was far too broad instead of just covering these narrow protest you know uh, you know I." Specifically identified protests. The protest, the injunction covered the whole province, so nowhere in the province could you gather to uh, protest against the uh, imposition of COVID restrictions or uh, restrictions on protesting. The other thing, it was too broad, and the, and there was expert evidence. First of all, the, the court was critical that uh, Dr. Strang himself, who was an applicant as the uh, you know chief medical officer for public health. Was also made and was also accepted as an expert witness. So to be the applicant and also an expert on the same case uh, was, they were very, very critical of, uh, the Court of Appeal was critical of that. And uh, also that these were outdoor protests and that his expertise or the expertise that was presented uh, didn't establish that outdoor protests at that time, this was in May of 2021, that the transmission of the virus in outdoor settings was clearly established, uh, you know, so that wasn't, uh, that was another reason to overturn the appeal. And that uh, the attorney general, if, you know, if anybody's looking for uh, an injunction against their neighbor, against a business, maybe you don't have to have a special obligation, but the attorney general does have a special obligation to consider Uh, and bring evidence on the impact of an injunction on the charter rights of citizens. So uh, that wasn't done and should have been. Now, uh, what's gonna happen now? I think this just provides guidance if there's any restrictions or protests in the future and how courts would handle injunction applications in those cases. I don't see why the government would appeal this decision to the Supreme Court of Canada. Rather, instead, they should just use this as guidance as to how better to handle things next time around. Okay. So that's the second story. That was the uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association challenge to the Nova, Sto- Nova Scotia protest injunction decision. Third story. I'll be brief on the, the next few stories. Will be brief. uh Third story is out of British Columbia, and this is a decision on mandatory COVID-19 vaccination policy in a non-union environment. Paramar versus Tribe Management. This was an office environment. The worker, uh, Ms. Paramar, was uh, in an accountant, an accounting professional, they say 200 employees, uh, and had imposed a mandatory vaccination policy. Parmar had, uh, Ms. Parmar had suggested that she work from home only come in to sign checks on certain occasions under conditions, get frequent tests. Uh, and the company said, no, uh, we need you to do this, or we're going to put you on unpaid leave. And so, Ms. Paramar considered that to be constructive dismissal, in other words, to be fired without really being fired and uh, sought uh, you know, relief on that basis. The court said, no, uh, that was a reasonable policy, that the COVID-19 pandemic was an extraordinary context uh, within which it was not unreasonable to enact such policies. So uh, here we have our first superior court decision in the country dealing with a non-union context. So. If you're out there and you're in a non-union context and your employer has uh, had a vaccination policy, uh, quite likely you would have had to comply with that in order to uh, keep your job. All right, next story. Uh, Dalhousie Law School, my, uh, my old law school, Schulich Law School now, I guess it's called, is, uh, has um, created a new course, sort of. Uh, this is a course where there's three days in October, two days in February, And the uh, release from Dalhousie Law didn't really indicate whether there was an exam at the end of it or how it was gonna be marked or graded uh, or accredited to each student, but they all have to take it, first years. And it's on African Nova Scotia legal theory, legal history, sorry, issues, uh, history and issues and critical race theory. Of course, critical race theory has become a hot button button item in the United States. Less so here, I took uh, a course, sort of, when I was in third year, I took a course called Jurisprudence, which is essentially uh, the philosophy of law. And in that, we did a, a class on critical race theory, really just looking at how uh, racial elements uh, you know, need to be examined. You deconstruct the law and see how it affects, differentially affects uh, people from different races. The easiest example is the street checks, uh, you know, street checks things that police do. Well, you know, if you say, well, you can check anybody that looks suspicious or anybody that looks like uh, they might, you know, be up to something, you can do a quick street check. Well, guess what? Uh, Who's gonna be most impacted by that are racialized minorities. And so even though the law on its face seems to apply to everybody equally in practice, it applies discriminately. And so that's something you need to examine and, and try to deal with through other ways. So the, the course that has the objectives and understanding uh, objectives are to understand the law's role in creating and redressing anti-black racism and other forms of discrimination, uh, understanding how critical race theory and practice are, are, can dismantle racial inequality, and how uh, African Nova Scotians are a legally distinct people, uh, which is true there's um, Certainly on in criminal law for sentencing, uh, you can have a, a cultural impact uh, assessment done and uh, for African Nova Scotians, and the, that is uh, very helpful. and for how to be culturally competent lawyers uh, in the context of your professional responsibilities. And so this is very uh, this is good. Um, Dalhousie has had a strong indigenous uh, Black Mi'kmaq, uh program for many years now, and this is just, a continuation or a, an ongoing development of that. Uh, you know, like I say, it used to be taught as part of jurisprudence, it probably still will be, and uh, this is a nice addition to it, so uh, keep an eye on that. I thought it would be interesting for uh, people to study, or people to be aware of. So, uh, next story will be the, oh yeah, the Annapolis Group versus uh, Halifax Regional Municipality decision. This went to the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, so the background is Annapolis Group owns uh, lots of property, many acres around uh, Blue Mountain, Birch Cove Lakes area, uh, northwest of uh, the city. Uh, they had been looking to, they'd owned it for many years, hadn't done much with it, but they were looking to develop it. Halifax then uh, changed the zoning to urban settlement and urban reserve, so effectively prevented Annapolis from developing the property as they had in mind. So uh, so the question is, uh, is that an expropriation? Well, Annapolis still owns the land, the, the government hasn't taken it from them, but you know, when this was first coming through, it seemed to me clear that it was an expropriation in, in kind, if not in name. And so what the Supreme Court of Canada says, well, they looked at it as a, a constructive taking. So in other words, even though you, you still own it, we as the government effectively control it and restrict everything that you can do on it. So any it's effectively now uh, taken and an effective expropriation. So what happened, the history of this, so this wasn't, the Supreme Court of Canada didn't decide that yet. Uh, what this was, the city of Halifax had made an application for summary judgment to say, listen, this isn't even a case. Uh, there's no such thing as uh, constructive taking. This isn't. You can't even call this expropriation if we didn't take ownership of it. The case should be dismissed just on its face. So Annapolis opposed that. Uh, the Nova Scotia Supreme Court at the first level sided with the Annapolis group This isn't Annapolis Valley government, this is a a private company. They sided with the Annapolis group, uh, went to the Court of Appeal, the city of Halifax uh, appealed that decision. Sorry, so at the Supreme Court level, the the first level, the city had applied to dismiss the claim on the basis that there was just no claim there. Uh, Supreme Court sided with Annapolis Court of Appeal sided with the government saying, yes, this is, uh, you know, this is not an expropriation and they um, overturned it on appeal, went to the Supreme Court, and now the Supreme Court restored the original motions judge decision that says land doesn't actually have to be taken in order to um, be called expropriation if the regulation prevents you from using it the way you want to use it. That's the same thing. So uh, now that's not the end of the story. Now it can go to trial and figure out if indeed, based on those guidelines, this was an expropriation and then what's the value that Annapolis has lost by not being able to use this property in the way they wish to do so. What's going to happen? It could go to trial. I wouldn't be surprised now that the Supreme Court of Canada has set these guidelines, which aren't uh, really that difficult to follow. I suspect the parties will negotiate and settle that claim. So, uh, no doubt we'll be hearing more about that in the next few months. All right, so that's uh, the Annapolis versus Halifax claim. Final, case, final situation is this uh, U.S. Uh, marijuana pardon. Uh, big news when it came out from President Biden. Uh, lots of people thought it was wonderful news. Uh, that, so what happens is, is it was a pardon for uh, some people with a simple possession record. But there's many caveats, first of all. It's only those who were uh, convicted under federal law now it's different in the United States in Canada there's the criminal law which just applies across the country. there's not um, you know real there's no real separation of federal versus provincial in the United States it's a little different in the United States actually there's nineteen states which have which permit recreational marijuana, so thirty one that don't and uh, Federal law overlaying all of that, which uh, still, where it was still illegal. In fact, marijuana is categorized in the same way as uh, heroin, cocaine, and all those uh, in the same drug schedule. So it's treated very harshly in some ways. So it doesn't apply to people who were convicted under state law, which is most people, or local laws. In fact, there's only about 6,500 people in the United States eligible for this pardon. Although, So it seemed like a big deal that President Biden was pardoning all of these offenders. Uh, it's not clear that anybody was actually in jail for federal-only uh, marijuana offenses. Um, but it sent a signal, and uh, now the next step will be to for the United States to change marijuana from the same schedule as those harsher drugs into its own schedule probably in Uh, perhaps at some point decriminalize it or legalize it as we have in Canada. So you would think that Canada would have already done this uh, since we have uh, a different legal regime when it comes to cannabis. But uh, what Canada has done is quite uh, actually less than what the United States has done. In Canada, first of all, there's no real thing as a pardon. It's called a record suspension. So, you know, if... If you're applying for a job, it's helpful, but if the police are checking on you, it's still there on your record. So it's a, it's not quite a pardon as it is in the United States and as it used to be in Canada. Normally, you need a five to ten year uh, time frame after you've been convicted before you can apply for a pardon in Canada. There is a, an expedited process now where you don't need to have that five-year waiting period for a marijuana offense. But... Uh, Very little uptake on this so far. This is from, started in 2019 when the legislation came into place, came into effect. 10,000 people in Canada with uh, marijuana alone records, only 458 people have applied for a pardon under this, or record suspension, and only 257 of those have been granted. So just over half of them have been granted. Uh... Now, there's a fee, a $650, $631 fee normally if you're applying for a pardon. That's waived for these offenses. But still, uh, very little uptake on that so far in Canada, uh, perhaps because it's a record suspension and not a pardon. Uh, so it doesn't have a real effect. Uh, and you need to apply. It's not something that's done automatically on the government side in Canada or the United States seems like something that would be much simpler to do that way rather than forcing people to apply, but uh, that's that's the system. And I guess if people are interested in helping themselves, it's not a big deal to uh, make an application. But anyway, we'll see. Okay, so that was uh, something I thought you might find interesting out of the United States with some implications for Canada or some connection. So that was it. The Emergencies Act Inquiry, Canadian Civil Liberties Association Challenge to the Nova Scotia Protest Injunction, COVID-19 Protest Injunction, Uh, BC Supreme Court on mandatory COVID-19 vaccination policies in non-union environments, Dalhousie Law's mandatory course on African Nova Scotian uh, legal studies and critical race theory, the Annapolis Group versus Halifax uh, expropriation-ish decision, and the uh, pardons for marijuana offenses. So uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, watching, and thanks for listening. I'll be back next week, and like I said, be sure to tune in if you're able to tonight and interested to hear more about my thoughts on the Mass Casualty Commission uh, and my report that's been uh, that's available now on Apple Books, uh, Smashwords, Kobo, uh, Scribd, everywhere you look. So thanks again for watching, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.